0: Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis, and I started this show to share insights on how other songwriters and composers work. You can hear all the episodes and learn more about these artists at composerquest.com. This episode I talk with the talented trombonist, improviser, and composer Nick Simon. Nick's been a friend of mine since high school, and we occasionally make experimental music together under the name Cage Tones. This month Nick has been really busy working on a jazz ensemble piece, which he based on the historic collapse of a major waterfall in Minneapolis. Nick talks about how he takes this story and makes it into purely instrumental music.
1: Not that a listener will necessarily pick up on these really obscure details of local Minnesota history, but I've tried to use that history as a way of just structuring my composition.
0: We also get to talking about improvising and about Nick's Latin jazz studies at Indiana University.
1: Within Afro-Cuban music, you have this constant push and pull within the rhythm. What you want to do when you're playing over that, or if you're going to compose a melody, is alternate every other measure between rhythms that ground you to the downbeats of the tempo and then rhythms that accent other parts of the beat. We also talk about the album we
0: collaborated on and finished in one month for the RPM Challenge last February. So on to my talk with Nick Simon.
1: Nick, welcome to Composer Quest. Hi Charlie. How's it going? It's going really well. I've been listening to this podcast a lot. I'm, it's It's been really fun.
0: Yeah, we've been talking about having you on for a while. So mm-hmm. it's good. good to finally happen. So this month you've been working on a project writing a larger jazz piece. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you could explain
1: that a little bit. Yeah, I've had this idea in my head for a little while to write a longer piece of music based on the story of St. Anthony Falls, which is the waterfall on the Mississippi River that Minneapolis is built around. And there's some really, really crazy stories based around it. And the piece sort of centers around something that happened in 1869 when part of the waterfall collapsed and turned into this big whirlpool right in the middle of Minneapolis and sucked a bunch of mills and buildings into it. So I thought that was you know a pretty incredible story. So I'm trying to write a piece based around that for a large jazz ensemble. Nice. So you've given yourself one month to yeah. finish it. The... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the the one month this just February thing is sort of in the spirit of what we did last year. With our Cage Tones project. Did you see the moon? And that was part of the RPM challenge, is that what it's called? Yeah. That one, the goal is to write 35 minutes of music
0: Mm -hmm. in a month. For some reason, February seems to be the month of doing (laughs) things like that. Because I think there's another February album writing month.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, it's the shortest
1: month, so maybe it's the least intimidating.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Or most intimidating if you're actually trying to finish something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a tough. Making that deadline last year was tough, but we did it. Yeah. But I liked that. It was a good time of year to just challenge yourself to really be productive. So this year I wanted to do that again, and I was a little less ambitious. I'm just composing the piece. I'm not recording it or doing any of the production or anything like that yet. So my goal is just to have the piece composed by the end of the month.
0: How are you telling this story of the St. Anthony
1: Falls disaster? (laughs) Well, I'm I'm working on that, trying to do it (laughs) through music. Um, The original idea is to do it in four parts. So the first part is sort of a musical depiction of what the falls were naturally before a town sprung up around them. And then the second part is the development of sort of a standard western city around the falls and the lumber milling and flour milling companies that happened around there. And they were placed there because they could use water power from the falls to power their mills. And then the third section is when the falls collapsed because basically the structure was compromised by all of these mills that were digging tunnels underneath them to divert the flow of water to the mills. And they eventually did that so much that that's what caused this big collapse. fourth part i was imagining as sort of the longevity of the river do you think you'll be taking
0: themes from like the first movement mm-hmm. and second movement and yeah reusing them or how
1: do you do that yeah well i started with the first theme is just a simple little melody so an ascending fifth and then a descending fifth and then just stepwise motion up the scale from there. So I've used that as sort of the basis for a lot of the other things that are going on because eventually that first melody that you hear slowly becomes a faster groove. And that eventually becomes the second movement and sort of how things chug along from there. Were you thinking of what a falls
0: looks like or sounds like as you were coming up with?
1: Yeah, that melody. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I was thinking like that melody came just popped into my head when I was trying to fall asleep one night and I was thinking about the first movement and it sounded to me like it fit the idea of what I had in my head of the sort of natural waterfall that was there. And I guess you could try to get theoretical about it and say that the melody is made up of seconds, a smaller interval and then fifths, a larger interval. So you have notes moving right next to each other and then a sudden drop. So I don't know how I'm not that much of a theoretician, but I like that idea. And then from there, I did try to do some things that were more directly. In the first movement, the piano part starts with just one really low note played as fast as possible, like the rumbling of the waterfall. Cool. So we'll see. I I honestly have no idea how it'll work out, but I decided that I was just going to do it and jump right in. This is sort of a bizarre example, but there's a trombone repairman who is so good at repairing trombones that people send their horns to him from all over the world. And I was watching an interview with him, and they asked him how he got started. It was like, did you start on like a really crappy trombone and just try to fix it yourself? And he was like, no, I started with my very best trombone and just tried to fix the slide myself because I knew that if I used my most expensive, most valued instrument, I wouldn't mess it up and I would have to do it really well. And if I was just experimenting on like a crappy trombone, I wouldn't work as hard. So the stakes aren't that high here. But I figured I'd just start with something that I actually wanted to create and that I wanted to feel good about as opposed to, you know, doing a bunch of practice pieces. Sure. So we'll hmm. see. It may, you know, it may end up being scrapped entirely, but it's teaching me a lot so far. <laughs> <laughs> what have you learned so, so far? I think the first thing I learned was just to to iterate, to write something and then write it again just you work with the same ideas and just see what comes out. The intro of the piece, it wasn't very efficient, but I wrote it three times. So I wrote it the first time and then I rewrote it twice. And the sort of the third incarnation of that I was pretty happy with. Huh. So it was it was interesting to see how it changed.
0: How do you characterize the humans coming in and building a city over the waterfall?
1: I'm sort of in the middle of that right now. My current idea with that is a little bit more the chaos of improvisation over a sort of a steady structure. And then that eventually is going to sort of resolve into this big climax of the collapse in the whirlpool. Within the history of that time, the 19th century in Minnesota, around Minneapolis, there was a city that started on the east side of the falls called St. Anthony, and then a city on the west side of the falls called Minneapolis. And there were sort of two competing companies trying to Harness the power of the waterfall. So, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to have two different improvisers. One will start, and another one will join, and they'll sort of join together, and then the second one will take over, which fits loosely the story of those two cities because St. Anthony was actually the older city, but it was a lot more chaotic and mismanaged. And then Minneapolis was actually run by this collective of people that did a really good job of sort of organizing their mills. So Minneapolis eventually was way, way more successful than St. Anthony. And then St. Anthony sort of dissolved and became part of Minneapolis. Not that a listener will necessarily pick up on these really obscure details (laughs) of local Minnesota history, but I've tried to use that history as a way of just structuring my composition for my own purposes of just using it as a way to guide what I'm writing. Yeah. And hopefully, regardless of what people know about the history, that will still sort of get the sense of a story flowing through the piece.
0: Yeah, that's a great idea. Have you used stories
1: in the past when you're writing instrumental music? A little bit, definitely to different degrees. I've composed some pieces that were more of just sort of a feeling, and then some pieces that were more, a little bit more of an actual encounter. One of them, Dissolve, was just sort of this. (laughs) this sort of overwhelmed feeling that I was experiencing at the time in my second year of grad school (laughs) Um, so that was just sort of that depicted in music and the title came from what a classmate of mine told me, they said, oh don't you just feel like you want to dissolve some days I thought that was pretty dark, (laughs) pretty out there but it worked as a great title for the piece So open to interpretation because there's no words, there's no images, there's nothing concrete about it. And I guess there are some pieces that really, you know, some classical pieces that really did try to be very, very specific, you know, pieces like, what was it? The Moldau, that river, and you know, Night on Bald Mountain and all those pieces that you hear in Fantasia and Disney movies Mm -hmm. (laughs) where they tried to tell you this is what this means. But I think a lot of instrumental music is effective because it can be so personal through its fluid nature that doesn't have an exact definition. It's sort of like the pop tune that talks about something really vague that everyone can relate to because they've experienced something similar in their life and they think of their own life stories. I think instrumental music does that, but to a different level because there's not even the words about some relationship in the piece or anything. It's just an emotion. And it inspires possibly the same emotion in everyone, possibly different emotions, but then those emotions bring up memories and real personal feelings.
0: Could talk a little bit about improvising. Okay. Because that's something kind of s- mysterious to me still. Mm. What are you thinking about when
1: you're playing uh, an improvised solo? Uh, or- I've heard a lot of different explanations of it. One of the best ones was from one of my improvisation teachers, Pat Harbison, who said, real specifically, when you improvise, you're just doing two things. You're listening to the sounds in the room, and then you're imagining that missing part. And if you imagine that missing part intensely enough, you can just play it, trying not to think about other things. The real disadvantage, though, is that you can't put that music that you hear in your head directly out into the world without some sort of interface. For jazz players, instruments is normally what we use. So being able to, as quickly as possible, create that sound that you hear in your head as closely as possible to that is, I think, where it's becomes, you know, a very long-range endeavor. Um learning how to play your instrument in a way that you can produce that as instantaneously as possible. <laughs> do you remember what it was like starting out
0: improvising?
1: Yeah, I do. Very distinctly. My um my younger sister got a little toy keyboard for Christmas, I think, one year. And that was pretty cool. And naturally being her older brother, I had to play with it too. But one of the things that I found out right away is there were these jam tracks. I can still hear it in my head. It was just this like one, six, two, five progression in C that was like, boom. It just went on and on and on. And it had this like sort of goofy rumba beat underneath it. And I would just sit. And I would just play the white notes, because since it just stayed right in the key of C, I could just play any of the white notes on the keyboard and just wander around from there. And I would just sit and improvise with that for like half an hour at a time. And it drove my family completely nuts, especially because this thing had batteries in it. And we would take it along on our road trips, like our (laughs) 16-hour road trips out to Colorado and back. (laughs) and they would they'd be like all right that's enough you need to stop you just (laughs) need to stop now you've been doing that for an hour and we get it
0: (laughs) so you studied a lot of latin jazz when you were in grad school what kind of stuff have you learned there that you apply to your own music making
1: a lot of it was sort of a new way of thinking about rhythm The Afro-Cuban musical tradition has one of the most extensive rhythmic systems in all music, basically. Whereas Western harmony is tension and release harmonically, dominant chords and tonic chords and these cadences that we all know so well, if we don't know what to call them, we at least know what they sound like. But within Afro-Cuban music, it's all based around a tension and release system within the rhythmic plane you have a two-measure system. One that is made up of downbeats and sort of grounding rhythms, and another one that is made up of syncopated rhythms and polyrhythms. The most common way you hear it is the clave rhythm, which is one, two, three, four, one. One, two, three, four. one two, three, four. And so what you have is you have a two-measure rhythm, one with a click on beats two and three right on the beat, And then the next rhythm is a portion of a polyrhythm. It's on beat one, the and of two, and then on beat four. So one, two, three, four, one, two, and three, and four. And that's not the rhythm that everyone plays all the time, but that represents the phrasing structure of rhythms that are played within that. Let me see if I can demonstrate it. So you have a clave rhythm, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, and four, one, two, three, and four, one, two, three, and four. And so what you want to do when you're playing over that, or if you're gonna compose a melody, is alternate every other measure between rhythms that ground you to the downbeats of the tempo, and then rhythms that accent other parts of the beat. So what you have is you have this constant push and pull within the rhythm that that constantly resolves itself. <laughs> The cool part about that is In Western music, we don't have a way of concretely thinking about rhythm in a theoretical sense. But it's a sort of unwritten part of a lot of different musics, this idea of rhythmic phrasing. I've even heard some people say melodic rhythms. Making rhythms so, you know, despite the harmonic and melodic content, they still have direction and phrase.
0: about this time last year when we were working on our album for the rpm challenge yeah gauge tones yeah mm-hmm. nick and i collaborated on this project and it was some of me writing stuff some of nick writing stuff and then mm-hmm. we'd come together mm-hmm. and one of my favorites actually was one that you pretty much came up with on the spot the
1: fisherman three that was the little organ loop right yeah yeah we would get together whenever we had time and try to set a really clear agenda and be like, this is what we have to get done because we have 28 days <laughs> and we need to write and record 35 minutes of music. So I think we had we'd sort of finished up one idea or were completely stalled out on another. And I wandered off and found this little electric organ, like a tiny portable one that sounded like a fan-driven harmonica almost. We had various instruments sitting around us, and I happened to pick up a guitar and started improvising over the top of that with just a very simple pentatonic scale, because I don't know how to improvise that well on the guitar, and that's all I could play. So I started playing that over it, and then tried singing and playing in unison.
0: I like the idea of things playing in unison that... Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think of I mean, mm. everyone plays guitar and sings, but yeah.
1: why don't they hum mm. along with yeah, the melodies just sort of on guitar a too? A wordless vocal thing over you hear that in a decent amount of contemporary jazz compositions. Like a lot of Pat Metheny arrangements by Bob Kernell have that in them where they'll put a vocalist with the jazz ensemble that just sings wordlessly. And sort of just becomes an instrument, just another instrumental color, Hmm. and it's nothing like what we ended up with. Yeah, (laughs) like that's a very different sound. But we recorded that in you know a matter of an hour maybe. Yeah. And I think I just said, Charlie, why don't you add some stuff to this? Yeah. And you ended up putting some wind chimes over it, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wind chimes, and I kind of took what I thought was the coolest pieces of your improv Mm -hmm. and pieced them together a little bit.
1: seems to me like what made that track work is the sort of mood that we were able to create
0: I think two things that make it work in my head too is there's a lot of space Mm -hmm. in between the guitar slash vocal line phrases the
2: other
0: thing too is when I was piecing things together I I was kinda of thinking of when you hit the highest notes, mm-hmm. kinda of save that for about three quarters of the way through. Yeah. Like a lot of mm-hmm. climaxes and melodies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that song's a good lesson in that mm. you don't have to have something super complex yeah you <laughs> can just come out of just a random chord pattern mm. that you pick and
1: loop and... lucky for us we would have never finished that project if it wasn't <laughs> the case yeah um, that's true but no it was great it was a great exercise in let's make something now you need to start somewhere and i think that's why projects like our february thing are so great because you, you do need a starting place And everything you learn in that process is valuable. Even if it's, you know, the first thing you learn or the second thing you learn of the 10 million things that you will learn throughout your life, you know, they're still going to influence each other. With shaking limbs I lose the roast That hold my future tight my sleepless eyes turn the road I leave for you tonight.
0: In our album, did we set out to have vocals in about half of this? Yep. I think and that was
1: our initial goal, like 50-50 vocal tracks and instrumental tracks.
0: Yeah. So, I think I would have wanted to do that even more, where it's like the track is half vocals and Mm -hmm. half instrumental not necessarily just this one is a song and this one is instrumental because it kind of gives you a time to reflect on the vocals when there's
1: an instrumental section Mm -hmm. and i think i mean you're hearing more of that now a lot of sort of indie pop right now has a lot of that in it which is cool but it's fascinating how if you listen to some of the early hits Of American radio like the number ones of the 30s and the 20s and stuff like that before jazz really took over the track will be like an orchestra playing for two minutes and then a singer will come in and like minute number three and sing a melody for the last minute and that was like one of the number one hits of the entire year you just don't hear stuff like that at all if there's going to be vocalists on the track they're going to be right at the beginning and they're going to be in all their glory We've talked a lot about instrumental composing, which I think is somewhat of a mystery for a lot of people. There's so many songwriters out there, and so much of our music right now in our society is vocal music. But, you know, composing just for instruments is, is pretty cool, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on Composer Quest, Nick. <laughs> no problem. Thanks, Charlie.
0: So now Nick and I are going to try and do a little bit of improvised jamming. Cage mm-hmm. Tone style, yeah. our duo, electronic experimental duo. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll end up using part of that as this episode theme. Okay. Or something oh, like yeah. that. Because we, we, need, we need to do a, cage tones, an intro theme. Cage Tones, your...
1: Composer Quest theme. That's a good yeah. idea.
0: Well, that wraps up my talk with Nick Simon. For more of his music, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Nick Simon. And Simon is spelled S-Y-M-A-N. Thanks so much to all you fans out there listening and giving feedback. As always, you can go to facebook.com/composerquest or twitter.com/composerquest to say hi or give me any suggestions for future episodes. So now I'll leave you with the rest of the improv piece Nick and I did for his Composer Quest intro.
2: So, yeah. so,